Maybe you've heard of polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS. They've been used across industry. Their long life means they can build up in water supplies and possibly harm human health. Now the Environmental Protection Agency has launched a website called PFAS Analytic Tools. It brings together many data sources about PFAS. For more on the site's design and goals, we turn to program analyst Nicholas Spalt. Mr. Spalt, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And Chief of the Integration Targeting and Access Branch, Michael Barrett. Mr. Barrett, good to have you. Tom, good to be here. And tell us about this site. Uh, What is it? Uh, What is it supposed to do? Who do you expect to take advantage of it? What we've created with the PFAS analytic tools is an automated integration portal that provides maps, charts, and tables about where PFAS is being reported, sampled, or detected in the U.S. It lets users see where the chemicals are made, who's reported releasing them into the environment, and where they may be used in industry. It also lets you see where PFAS has been identified within the federal government framework, like military bases. The information is scattered around in 11 different databases. So what we wanted to do here is develop a holistic view that can let users zoom into their local community and see what information is available. We know researchers and journalists are using it now to study things like fish contamination and connections between environmental detections of PFAS and what their sources may be. So if you wanted to check your local area to find out results of, let's say, drinking water samples or water discharges and toxic releases, you can just zoom into the map and dive into the information. Now, is all of the information there recorded by EPA research or is this local reporting, say, by state and local agencies or are there regulated entities out there that also have to report what they're doing for PFAS? I mean, give us a sense of the range of data in there. Yeah, it's a combination of different things. Some are coming from the states, some are coming from companies that are actually manufacturing the tools. Some may be from research done by either EPA or the states. And you might see information like fish tissue sampling and how much PFAS is in those fish or who's making the chemicals, how long have they made them, where are they making them, how much have they made, or things like what are the toxic releases that have been put into the water. Got it. Just a quick background question on these chemicals. They are made to be used in subsequent manufacturing. So is the danger from the manufacturing of the raw chemicals, the PFAS types of chemicals, or if you make a bottle or something out of it, does that thing that it's made from also become a possible source of pollution? So there are multiple pathways where PFAS can get into the environment. And so obviously where the chemicals are made are a concern that, you know, we would want to look at. But then there are downstream uses and there are many uses. And, you know, people in their homes may have heard that, you know, you have this in, let's say, a nonstick pan or any type of clothing that has waterproofing on it or even maybe cosmetic products. Those are the type of things it's used for. There may be, you know, many other uses that are out there. And so as EPA and states are getting a handle on how PFAS is getting into the environment, you have to study all those different things. You have to study things like firefighting foam and, you know, where that's been sprayed. So there's a lot of different potential ways that this can get into the environment. Got it. And is the website as it stands now complete or are there other sections, type sources of data that you would like to have that maybe don't exist yet or aren't coming into the EPA? 
Well, we made a conscious decision to put the information out in the form that it is now so that the public could have access to it. That said, many of the databases are still filling in. So in some circumstances, we don't have information from all states, but we are continuing to look for other data and we're going to just keep growing the tool out, adding it. Some of the things that you know we may like to see in the future would be information on biosolids or pretreatment or air releases. Those are places that where right now we don't have a lot of information. And what is the status, Nicholas, of PFAS now? That is to say, it's a regulated chemical. Has it been banned yet? I know that some fire departments are no longer using that. The military is trying to get away from PFAS-based foam at bases and so forth. Where does it stand in kind of the cycle of EPA and regulation and that whole cycle? Where we are standing now is kind of like in a still a research uh, aspect related to PFAS. So um, in EPA strategic roadmap, we do have a viewpoint of looking at these chemicals, exposures and toxicities related to PFAS. So as Mike said earlier, there's over 12,000 chemicals that are currently considered as PFAS. And we're still working to understand, you know, the, the entire class of PFAS. And we're also working to restrict PFAS introduction into the environment and remediate it where it has been introduced to the environment and there are exposures to people. So that's kind of where we're standing right now. And at the top, I mentioned anyhow that it is long lasting. Is this one of those things that lasts forever and ever, even after, say, a factory closes or changes its practices and so forth? Could there be like a love canal type of thing somewhere in the future because of the longevity? Yeah, I think that, you know, there have been obviously media reports about some areas where there have been manufacturing, where there's serious concern. But as we go forward, I mean, that's part of the reason we launched this tool was to try to understand where the highest detections are coming up. And I would say that although this is considered an emerging pollutant, it has been around for a bit of time. EPA is trying to kind of tighten the regulatory structure. We're working right now to essentially create a hazardous substance designation under Superfund that would tighten in on the regulations on that aspect. We also have developed a final rule that is going to require nationwide sampling of 29 PFAS chemicals in drinking water. And we're also proposing additional rules to make sure that Certain PFAS can't re-enter the marketplace if the use has been discontinued. And we're also looking right now at taking a final action to better characterize the quantities and sources of PFAS manufactured in the U.S. So as we go forward, we're seeing the regulatory aspect tighten up, and that's going to also be providing more data that people can kind of see within this tool. Got it. And with respect to the tool itself, what is the uptake been? Are you getting metrics for who's visiting, how long they're there, the types of data that they're looking at when they are there? We're starting to look at that. We did a national webinar. We had over a thousand folks on that. We've seen the usage start to spike up. List of people, you know, academia, private industry, other government agencies. When, let's say, a wastewater or drinking water plant starts to see PFAS pop up, they can use our tool to try to figure out who's nearby that could be causing it. And we think that's one of the most important use cases for this tool. Sure. And are there particular like geographical areas of the country where this is more prevalent? And maybe there's some way of letting people know, hey, you can look it up. 
Yeah, I think generally the research is showing that because these chemicals are all across the country that, you know, the literature is showing that, you know, people have small amounts of PFAS in their blood. But if you're near a source that has been providing, you know, let's say a dose of the PFAS chemicals over a long period of time, then, you know, that's of higher concern. And that's where we want to look. We know that the manufacturing aspect is mostly east of the Mississippi River. However, you know, if you think about firefighting foam, you have airports, you have military bases, those are kind of scattered across the U.S. So that's what hopefully this tool can help people start researching in more detail. And there has been other recent legislation on infrastructure, as everyone knows at this point, and a lot of that is directed toward local and state water supply operators. That's where water originates at the municipal and and local level, county level. I imagine this would be useful to those authorities and operators just to save time. They don't have to keep calling the EPA, whereas PFAS, if we're updating our water supply, we can look it up ourselves. Is that part of the goal here? Definitely true, but it's also a two-way street that we would love to receive more information and, you know, particularly in states that may not have published this yet. If a member of the public is actually looking at the tool and they, you know, see not a lot of information in it, then I would definitely urge them to also look on state and local websites because it's possible that there's data out there that we haven't been able to take in yet. And Mr. Spalt, anything to add? Uh, just so far, we've been working closely with state agencies and, and uh, local authorities and using the tool. So helping them developing, you know, sampling plans would be a perfect use case of using the PFAS analytic tools. And a lot of manufacturers, I guess, have given up voluntarily using it. People that make, I think there was a brouhaha over water bottles or, you know, permanent types of containers people use, you know, reusable, that that industry has kind of gotten away from these. We have had some companies that have joined kind of voluntary phase outs over the years. But again, that's something that a lot of these chemicals are super useful in products. And so they're looking for alternatives. And we're hoping as we set these regulatory structures up that those are much safer than what they used in the past. Michael Barrett is chief of the Integration Targeting and Access Branch. Nicholas Spalt is a program analyst both with the Enforcement Targeting and Data Division at the EPA. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. We'll post this interview along with a link to the PFAS analytical tools at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL 
was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints, uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the stage or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give, uh, working the Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful and and uh, yeah, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and and the thing that that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be uh, it's not just school age it's it's uh, you know we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams uh, bowl together golf together play soccer basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.